tremendous. So I'm looking at this table. It says Brazil played six, won six, scored 16, conceded two. Andrew Downey, if I were to put money on Brazil, would you stop me for the World Cup? Uh, I would never stop you putting money on Brazil to win the World Cup, which is not the same as believing that Brazil will win the World Cup, if you get my drift. Mm -hmm. A, because, or primarily because, Brazil are always going to be a team that are in with a chance of winning the World Cup. They have the history, they have the tradition, they have the great players, they have everything in place. Uh, to always be there or thereabouts. However, they haven't won the World Cup since 2002, and if they don't win it next year, it'll rival their longest ever drought. Adding into that, you haven't had South American team win the World Cup since 2002, since Brazil. And you haven't had... Think of, I think of the last four uh, World Cups, I'd need to check this, but I think of the last four, there's only been one finalist, which is Argentina, Argentina. from South America. No, that's correct. Uh, yeah. And I think even, yeah, even the third places, the, the no Brazilian, no South American team has finished in third place since you know, the last last four World Cups. So what you're seeing is you're seeing European teams become more and more dominant. There's a lot of reasons for that, which is probably an, another pro, another podcast. It would not surprise me if Brazil win the World Cup. It would also not surprise me if Brazil went out in the quarterfinals as they've done as they've, they've done as they did last time. The one, and I'll say one other thing that's quite important here is that it's it's harder and harder to know how competitive South American teams are because they can no longer play European teams in friendlies thanks to UEFA's Nations League. So oh, I think, yeah. uh, in fact, I know Brazil have only played one European team since the last World Cup, which was the Czech Republic and a friendly. So it's very no, it's very difficult to know. You know how good they really are, even though they're dominant in South America, because they just don't meet European teams any longer. That's very interesting. That makes me think that UEFA have wanted to try and shore everything up, because South America, in the era before I really knew what a World Cup was, my first World Cup was 98, my second World Cup was 2002, so I'm very familiar. Uh, in fact, when I think of it international just, uh... football, I probably think of that Nike ad in the airport with Mashke Nada. You're just a you're just a you're just a wee boy, Johnny. I'm just a child. Um, when just I when I was boy. born um, in 1988, the Hillsborough disaster hadn't happened, and um, I got who played for the Brazil team of 1990. Roberto, Mario, Muller, Dunga played. Zenga. Afarel was in goals. Uh, what else? Uh, Branco played. Mazzinho, maybe. Yeah. Very possibly, I can't even remember. I was at the, uh, 1990, I was at the Brazil-Scotland game when Scotland needed, needed to, I think just to draw to qualify for the next round and then Brazil scored with eight minutes left. Yep. But Muller scored late and spilled the ball and Muller followed up, tapped home, which was a, a killer on a wet and miserable night in, in Turin. And that, remember, Brazil went through to the, to the I think it was the last 16, they got knocked out by Argentina with a beautiful dribble from Maradona who freed... Canigia uh, and Canigia shot home. This, and then, of course, the worst World Cup final of all time, which part of me thinks, I, I don't know why, but I think I remember on Mum's TV, Roberta Baggio missing the penalty. I don't know if this was a replay, but I always knew That's about right. the Baggio miss over and over and above in, uh, not Sacramento, Pasadena, the great footballing nation of Pasadena. This is what's nonsense. 
I mean, I asked you at the top, Andrew Downey, whose Twitter handle is adowneybrazil, and you are there uh, in Brazil today. With your Brazilian wife or Portuguese wife? Well, I'm actually, I'm not in Brazil today. I'm in London today, but I will be in Brazil next week. Oh, um, fair. My, I've been in Brazil for almost 20 years. Came back to the UK just before the pandemic, you know, thinking I was going to be here or thinking I was going to be going back to Brazil soon uh, and got stuck here. So we're finally going back to Brazil on on Saturday. Oh, wicked. So, so when this comes online, I'll probably be back in Brazil again for at least for a few months. Yes, but I asked you about the Qatar World Cup because the whole thing is nonsense. I, I don't even know if I'm going to watch it. It's too big, it's too bloated, it's in Qatar. Give me a ra- valid oh, reason why I should care. No. No. <laughs> no, no, I, I can't give you a valid reason why you should care. Good. That was okay. a very, very, very Scottish answer. I love that. If I went into a pub, <laughs> if I went into Sandy Bells by, by the uh, Bedlam Theatre, that's the kind of response I get. Can I have a drink? No. All right, then you can have one. Because oh. I know Edinburgh very, very well. Where are you from in the city? I'm from just along the coast from Leith. Oh, right. Uh, not quite Leith, but very close, very close by. Oh, is country. Granton. Oh, Granton. Yes, which is, uh, I once, it is horrible to say, but I once got invited to Granton. Uh, oh, no, maybe that was Sight Hill. That was the other way. I once got on a bus from Granton because I was doing some work in Glasgow for money. I don't think they even paid me in the end for some reason. But the bus, the minibus, at about four in the morning left from Granton. So I remember getting the bus, there, a cab there. And it's very, it's Granton. It's very Granton. Uh, but do you hold any of Granton within you today? Well, it depends what you mean by, it depends what you mean by that. If you went back there, would you absorb yourself back into Granton life, or are you a fully naturalised Brazilian now? Yeah, um, it's not. Uh, this is not anything against uh, Granton no, 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 or no, no, Edinburgh no. or Scotland or even the UK. It's. I've been away for thirty years. I lived outside the UK for thirty years in Mexico, in Haiti, and in in Brazil. So, yeah, I, I feel as Brazilian as I do British, especially in recent times. Yes, and the Football Library does have politics. You'll be delighted to know that John Nicholson is our honorary hermit because, he, you know, Johnny Nick, you, you may have read his articles. I don't know, I'm not sorry. No, it's fine. You're busy working for Reuters, I don't presume anything. But Johnny Nick uh, now lives in Scotland. He's a guy from Toon, he's from, sorry, from uh, Middlesbrough, who uh, writes various ah. crime novels and he's very anti-modern football. Writes for Football 365, and yeah. he's the guy that I've put at the front desk in order to uh, introduce people to politics. Roy Keane is at the door, and then you've got Johnny Nick. And then in this football library, you've got rows and rows and rows of programmes, magazines, books, and videos, and everything else. Uh, and there are three books of yours, or two and a half, I should say. Dr. Socrates, footballer, philosopher, legend. You also translated the book of Gorincha which is, uh, we'll come to, but we're really here to talk about The Greatest Show on Earth, which is a book that, I'm sorry I've annoyed you for the last year, because I thought it would come out last year. You probably thought it would come out last year. It is out as we speak next week. What a relief. Really, I know. It was supposed to come out last year, but it got held over because of the pandemic. There was a worry that uh, a lot of the books that were going to be coming out you know, over the summer, they got held over because of the pandemic. They were all going to come out and this big glut in, in, in at the end of the summer and in, in, in the autumn uh, and that's when my book was scheduled to come out and they thought that if it went out in this big glut or this big flood of books then it might get lost a little bit 
So they decided to hold it over for a year, which was fine. Just means that you move on. You kind of forget what you've been doing. You, for, you forget all the work that you did and oh, you're on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll ask me questions about how I did this book and I'll probably forget. <laughs> well, there are so many other things to discuss. I mean, your day job is a wire, a wire reporter for Reuters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can, if you type in Andrew Downey, i.e. not Robert Downey Jr., Andrew Downey. Although there must be a kinship between you and the Downey EYs. Aren't they British, going back? I couldn't really tell you. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Andrew Downey. I mean, Andrew Downey. Downey is not that uncon- It's not that rare a name in the UK. It's quite, you know, it's not Smith or Brown or Jones, but it's uh, it's not uncommon. There's quite a few Downeys around. Are there any Downeys in Brazil? Because Brazil is an immigrant nation. No, not really. Uh, well, certainly not enough. Come across Brazil. Brazil is a, it, it was an immigrant nation. It isn't really so much now. It was built on on immigration and slavery yeah. uh, to a large part. Um, most of the immigrants came from, you know, first of all Portugal, then Spain, then Europe, mostly Italy at the beginning of the 20th century, and Japan at the beginning of the 20th century. So there's a huge Japanese community, huge Italian communities, lots of Spaniards, lots of uh, lots of other Europeans. So you know, particularly Portuguese. And of course, it's a very black African influence because of, because of slavery. Many more times slaves came to Brazil than to the US. Uh, Brazil was, the, was the, the main destination for African slaves. So that's obviously has a, has a huge influence on Brazil today and Brazilian culture yep. and Brazilian football. Correcting. Or um, football, as it's called, F-U-T-E-B-O-L, Alex Belos's book goes to the soul of Brazil. It came out, it must have been 20 years ago. I lapped it up one summer holiday. Alex has moved into mathematics and also literature for kids. I haven't had him in yet. Uh, but that book, Football, does it tell a very, very true picture of Brazil as a nation? Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Uh, Alex was the Guardian correspondent in Rio at the same time as I was. I was in Rio. We were and remain good friends. And that is a fantastic book. And I always remember talking to Alex and saying, oh, he said, I felt like a bit of a fraud because, you know, you know, I, you know, I don't love football or I don't know football as, as well as, you know, a lot of people. And, you know, I can't really, I remember I was saying that, you know, you know, I find it hard to have this discussion 4-3-3-4-4-2, you know, what's the best? I said, Alex, you know, that isn't what you're doing in this book. You're not discussing football tactics or formations or anything like that. You're getting into a whole new level of discussion, which is the whole culture of football. And he, and he did that, you know, brilliantly. Masterful. And I'd recommend that book to anybody yes. who wants to know about Brazil. And a parallel book is the great David Goldblatt, whose new crusade is making sure that football doesn't drown. Um, the, the genius of modern football, the sage, football nation, a footballing history of Brazil, is a good comparison, uh, companion even, to that. But I wanted to talk about Gary Jenkins's book, which I found in a charity shop about 10 years ago. It's called The Beautiful Team. And it's the team we're talking about today because you're but the greatest show on earth, which is published by Berlin. Uh, deals with the 1970 World Cup and all we can think of is those golden shirts. So when you were putting together this chronicle, knowing that Brazil was so central to it, did you make recourse to what Gary had um, come up with because he spoke to pretty much every one of the team? Yeah, I remember reading Gary's book. I don't know, not maybe when it came out, but very shortly after. And it's, uh, it was a great idea. I mean, it really was a great idea to go around and talk to all the, all the players in that, in that great team. Um, and I read it again when I was doing research for this book, and, and I faced some of the same problems that Gary faced in that he wasn't quite able to get all 11 players because some of them wouldn't talk to him because 
he wanted money, and they were just complicated figures. Uh, and I faced a lot of the same problems trying to track down all the Brazilians because all the Brazilians now, they, you know, a lot of them are elderly and a lot of them don't have a lot of other stuff going on. They never really got, a lot of them never got into real, any real business after, after football. So other than football, they quite understandably, you know, see this as, as, as a way of, of this is what they've been good at and this is what they should make money at. And, you know, they ask for money. Uh, you know, I essentially just didn't have money. You know, you, to do a book like this, you don't, you don't get paid very much, which is another misconception that probably a lot of people have. Um, so when I first started to do the book, I mean, my initial thought was, oh, fantastic. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go around the world. I'm going to talk to all these great players. I'm going to hang out with them and I'm going to hear all their stories and I'm going to write this great book. And it took me about a week before I realised that was not going to happen because you know, a lot of them have, have, have passed away. You know, this 1970 was it was 50 odd years ago now. So the players who were then in their 20s mostly are now in their 70s or some are even in their 80s, and a lot of them have passed away. A lot of them, uh, as we've seen in England, particularly, you know, a lot of them have dementia. Yeah. A lot of them don't have a great memory. It's been very difficult to, or it's, it's difficult for them to to to, to recall uh, anything much as particular anecdotes about games that took place 50 years ago. Um, and a lot of the other ones that are still around, you know, weren't paid for it, and I, and I just didn't have the money. So it was a it was a struggle, and, and, I, and I did manage to get through to one or two of the old Brazilians. I worked on a documentary round about exactly the same time. There was a documentary that, that FIFA were making to coincide with the 1970 World Cup, the 50th anniversary, and I was hired to go. I was in Brazil. I was hired to to talk to these guys, to interview them, and, and it was fantastic. But I, I, mean, I, I wasn't able to use a lot of the testimony for my book but it did at least enable me to get to hear a lot of the stories again and, and in doing that you know we spoke to Jairzinho and Clodoaldo Rivellino um, who writes the forward who else yeah I mean I, I mean, I, I knew Ken Rivellino before that but again you know hanging out with them we, we had a really great time at his house Rivellino's a you know he's a he's an interesting character and, and after talking to him again he said you know would you write the forward you know and then he said yeah okay no problem so that was the way of getting a few of the of the, of the Brazil uh, stories, but more, more more than anything, really, it's a it's a work of um, research rather than a work of interviews because you you know you have to you, you have to you know weave so much of it together, and if you, you know you, any any kind of interview you do with somebody, you might you might talk for an hour and you'll get like two or three thousand words, and so on. A book like this is ninety thousand words, so you're going to need you know, 30, 40, 50 interviews to make it, you know, to make it work. And there's just no 30, 40, 50 players around who can talk, you know, at length uh, with the great memories, each providing something new for a book like this. So you have to go through, you have to go research, you have to get old archives, you have to get all the books that these guys have written, you have to go look at old interviews they've done on the TV and in magazines and newspapers and use that again to, and, and, and then my big task was taking the spoken interviews that I had it was taking the interviews that I'd, that I'd read and I'd seen on, online, and it was getting it was getting some researchers that, that I could that I could trust in other places, uh, and getting them to go and talk to somebody, say in Bulgaria, in Russia, in Romania, in, in Peru, and weaving it all together in, in, in the one book so that it, it makes a, a, a you know, convincing narrative. Yes, and I just wanted, uh, while you mentioned that, to credit all of these guys um, who are at the beginning of the book. I will try and find it. 
um, because I do want to credit them because it's it's quite extraordinary. Uh, Salvatore Riggio in Italy, Omar Fares Parra in Mexico, Walter Arana in Peru, Alexei Yaroshevsky in Russia, Claudio Martinez in El Salvador, Metodi Shumanov, Bulgaria, Pablo Gama and Felipe Fernandez in Uruguay, Sujay Dutt in Sweden, Karim Soliman in Germany, Emmanuel Rosu in Romania and Samindra Kunti in Belgium, all found old players and got them to talk about what they remembered. So this kind of like is a Damien Hirst creation. There's a whole workshop of elves and you're just the kind of Stephen Fry. God, I've mixed that metaphor. You're the, you get QI in Brazil? Uh, we don't. But, uh, the Stephen Fry I've figure. Been compared to, fucking I've ever been compared to Damien Hirst, which are, oh, I'll accept that. Good. Um, I didn't know, because Damien, I've walked past his factory in the East End and you could see the spots from the window. But yes, the Damien Hurst of football, uh, Andrew Downey, whose book The Greatest Show on Earth does go through. It's an oral history. It's uh, Some of the best books I've ever read are oral histories. Simon Reynolds um, and John Savage have written music books where the author is there in italics to prompt uh, the recollections. But it is really an oral history. John Robb. Punk and Oral History, for instance. There's a book on uh, the New York scene of the 2000s that Lizzie Goodman has written. I can't think of many football books that operate in that style. Can you? It's, it's, starting, it's starting to be a thing. Uh, I mean, the, the publisher, uh, Berlin publisher, the Arena Sports, really, they've done a few, rug, a few rugby oral histories. They did right. one about uh, the famous Lions tour. Um, I know Amy Lawrence did one about Ireland's of invisible season. Yes, but it's starting to be more of a thing. Uh, I don't know why that is. Maybe because, and this is just me surmising here, just me guessing that if people people are more, people would rather think speak if they know their words are being just written down word for word rather than having somebody interpret what they say. That might be an issue. I don't know, but it's starting to be a, a, a more of a thing, and I think you'll see more oral histories in the. Know, as we go on, and of course, this this ties in hand in hand with podcasts, which is kind of like a normal version of of, yes. uh, of oral histories. You know, you see, you know, I mean, if you're a Sopranos fan, you you know, there's a famous Sopranos podcast where you have members of the cast talking about every single episode. That I mean, that's essentially a normal history of of the Sopranos. Yep. So I think all this ties in together. Uh, it's all part of the the, the current trend. Well, the more I think about it, because I've got a book out next year called From Kids to Champions, and it's about the FA Youth Cup. And just so that I get more material from the likes of Steve Perryman, Nigel Gibbs, um, as a, Brendan Maguire, who talked about the Busby Babes, I think that's the best way to do it. Um, and then it's also easy to cut around the audio, and I might bring out an audio book of sorts. But I'm, I'm with Pitch... Uh, you're with Berlin. Your first book, Dr. Socrates, was with Simon & Schuster. That's right. Which is quite outstanding. Um, I don't know if you want to compare or contrast the two publishing houses. Simon & Schuster's bigger, obviously. I really I had that one experience with Simon & Schuster, another experience with Berlin, Berlin and they were, both, they were both quite different. And both, of course, took place in very different times. Also, you know, Simon & Schuster was my first book, so you didn't really know don't really know what you're supposed to be doing and how the, the how the, the system works, you know, yeah. Uh, you have a wee bit of a, more of an idea by the time you get to your second book. Two very different organisations. But was it useful making all the contacts with Dr Socrates? So And also showing off when you were talking to the Brazil 1970 team. I know Socrates and Garincha came afterwards. Um, but you could just name drop or even send them the Portuguese language edition of the book. Well, 
I mean, the thing is that the, the Portuguese language edition comes out next month, just coincidentally. Oh, you're kidding. Um, Great. Yeah. A lot of these players in Brazil, uh, these old players in Brazil, I mean, they wouldn't know me. I mean, they wouldn't know very. Unless you've been on television, they, they probably won't know you. You know, it was call. It was call. It was. I was either calling up blind, or I had spoken to them before. Uh, as I said, you know, you'd you'd call up these guys. You'd call up one of these players, and they'd say, you know, I'm doing a book, and they'll say, yeah, okay, like give me the X amount of money, and you'd say, listen, you know, this isn't like you're doing an odd for Mercedes or you know, Itaú Bank or something like that or Santander. It's it's, you know, I didn't really have any money, and they would and they would just go like, well, sorry, Paul, you know. Mm. Um, even though I've been in Brazil a long time, because all my stuff is, is, is published in, in English, or almost everything's published in English, uh, you know, I'm not that particularly well known in by Brazilian football players. And just to direct people to it, it's Reuters.com slash journalists slash Andrew hyphen Downey, if you type in Andrew Downey Reuters. Uh, as we speak, you've got a story about a soccer auction, a charity auction. And if only I had the money... For a Derek Jeter autographed Yankees photo, that would be a great uh, wedding present for my brother, actually, who's getting married next year. I've, I've no idea what that will set me back. Give it a go. There's plenty, you know, there's plenty of stuff for sale. All this is, this is been organised by Pelé for his, for his foundation. He signed a lot of pictures, particularly off the 1970 World Cup. Mm. Um, and he's signed quite a few jerseys, uh, replica jerseys. And he's got a lot of players to hand over jerseys and shirts and you know, shirts worn some worn shirts some just signed shirts um, a few pictures uh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff you know stuff from Cristiano Ronaldo from Neymar from Roger Mila from Roberto Baggio from Kylian Mbappe so there's plenty there that's on the 22nd of September if In you London. want to uh, sign up on Julian's auctions also online yeah I might well well when this goes out in November uh, all the lots will have been sold and Pele um, he's the guy who marketed football around the world. Never mind Beckham, never mind Messi, never mind Ronaldo. Pele was in a... Uh, if he wasn't in an episode of The Simpsons, he was referred to. And 94, if I guess, because you were around at the time, the figures who promoted the USA World Cup, bless Alexi Lalas, but it wasn't him, it was Pele. Pele was wheeled out. Well, not really, because Pelé had had a big fight with Jean Havelange at that point, who was the president of FIFA. They had had a personal discussion. Pelé was, he was frozen out of the draw for the 1994 World Cup, oh, which was a big scandal at the time. So Pelé, he kind of considered the 1994 World Cup going to the US as, as a personal triumph because he'd gone to the cosmos in part because he wanted to promote uh, football in the US. So finally, that getting to host the World Cup was a, was a real personal a personal triumph for him, but he, he he wasn't as involved in it as he might have been. He was a, he went as a commentator for Brazilian football, but he wasn't really involved in FIFA because of this fighting behind the behind the scenes between him and Ricardo Teixeira, the head of CBF, and João Avalanche, who was head of FIFA. We're talking about The Sopranos recently uh, on this show. Um, David Conn's book, The Fall of the House of FIFA, I don't usually read crime non-fiction, but oh, Gosh, the amount of nonsense that FIFA have gotten up to. On the record, that, that I won't get sued for slander there. And we're, we're currently talking, you mentioned at the top, are these Brazilian players who play in Europe, i.e. most of them, going to be freed up for this Argentina game and vice versa? I think they'll have to play in Europe. Yeah, who knows? I mean, FIFA have just released a statement, you know, asking the British government to make allowances and make exemptions, so... Who knows, by the time this comes out, you know, we'll know, but it's all up in the air right now. 
Yes, unlike the planes that are carrying people. But if you talk to David Goldblatt, he's saying that football is not environmentally sustainable. And what if there are going to be more airborne viruses? That's not going to be great with the social mixing. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the League Cup, the early rounds have been separated by region. You had the northern section and the southern section. So at least they're trying to make some concessions in the UK. We know about the World Cup in Brazil. In 2014, I was on the side of the protesters. Why are you hosting a World Cup when hospitals need to be built? Was it not uncomfortable reporting from Brazil at that time? I wouldn't say uncomfortable was the word. I mean, uh, Brazil, I mean, we had had known in Brazil for a long time that this was going to happen. I think Brazil got the right, won the right to host the World Cup in 2007. So this was always a constant in all our reporting. It was a constant in all our questions to Jerome Valk, who was mostly that took the questions. Um, and of course, to the Brazilian government. So, I mean, this was, you know, this was this was a constant. Uh, and then in 2013, right in the middle of the Confederations Cup, or right on the eve of the Confederations Cup, this uh, a wave of protests across Brazil um, really, you know, threatened to change the country. Uh, there was a lot of anger at, Lula. at, at living standards. Not not that living standards not getting not getting better while all this money was being spent on the World Cup. What did it really change? Uh, it changed a lot, but not, not a lot in terms of football. It changed a lot politically in Brazil because the president was impeached shortly after uh, and that led us to, or that was a contributing factor in the... In the populism. In the election of... Yeah, and, and populism in the election of, uh, you know, the far right, Jair Bolsonaro. But now that, so, that impeached candidate is standing against Bolsonaro next year. No, that, the impeached candidate was Dilma Rousseff. She was president and she was impeached in 2016. Okay, right. um, she was, before uh, Dilma was Lula, Lula was jailed and then his 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 conviction was quashed. Um, it was done all illegally, so, you know, to get him out of the race in mm. 2018. So he will be back running again in, in next year against, probably against Bolsonaro, although, you know, that's still a year away. Anything could happen. I certainly wouldn't be making any predictions that it'll be even that it would be Bolsonaro against Lula. Uh, that looks possibly probable now, but uh, you know, if we've learned anything over the past four or five years, is that, is that things change very quickly. So that's what we're looking at right now. Well, I don't want to finish the first half on that, um, but I did want to just add that this Pele documentary that came out on Netflix this year, which I've not seen, I read about it, and the questions that weren't asked about the politics are still valid today. What if um, Richarlison um, cozies up to one of the candidates? Does that mean he'll be hated by half of Brazil? Um, I mean, what I'd say is footballers, I mean, I mean, they have such a platform today. It's somebody like myself who's written about Socrates, you know, who's written about players who have taken a political stance, you know, if we if we are encouraging players to get involved in politics and take and to take a stance, we can't then complain Correct. that they take a stance for the side that we don't like. We can't complain that they've taken the stance without thinking about it, or that we can't complain that we don't like their stance, uh, and we can question you know why they've taken that particular stance. But we can't complain that that, that they're, they're, they're 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 taking a position. So you know. I mean, Brazil is polarised and football is polarised. And, you know, these days, anybody who comes up, you know, and sticks their head above the parapet and decides to take a position, then, you know, they're going to face flat from one side or another. So, you know, that's the way it's going to be, I think, in the foreseeable future. And football players are not exempt from that. 